Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Movie Beat Conversations with Filmmakers, where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV, and we will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and they'll provide you with the guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now, let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. My guest today is Mr. Todd Robinson. He's the director of the recent release, Phantom, uh, that he's written and produced along with Penn Denship and Julian Adams and others. And uh, it was out in theaters. I saw it. I loved it. He's uh, This is his second time on the show, and we're going to continue our discussion. Uh, so uh, he's going to come up in just a few moments. We'll let you know more about him in, in just a couple seconds. The chat room is open, so if you're listening live, you can join us in the chat room. That is always available when you listen live. And all of these interviews are archived at RexSykes.com. That's the official URL for Rex Sykes Movie Beat. I'm your host, Rex Sykes. is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. That's my name. And all of these interviews can be listened to live right from uh, RexSykes.com at the Interviews blog. You find my guest. You go uh, through their biography, and you find the link that says to listen, and you click on that link. If it has the date and says it's upcoming, it's a live interview. If it uh, doesn't have a date, it just says to listen, click the link. It's an archived interview. And all of these interviews, over 300 uh, interviews, 350 interviews, or 400 hours, something like that, are all are all archived right there at RexSykes.com. You can also listen right from Blog Talk Radio, or you can get the podcast from the iTunes Store. Uh, it's absolutely free. What we ask in return, in exchange for all the information that we're providing, because Movie Beat's really designed to be a resource for you, and that's why I'm connecting you up with all sorts of professionals who are in the trenches, making it happen, giving away secrets and tips and suggestions and, and what to do and what not to do. All we ask in return is two things. One, share the interviews far and near with all of your contacts, your connections, your friends, your filmmakers, uh, anyone, fans, and uh, share it. Post it, tweet it, Facebook it. Google Plus, use your favorite social media means, email, phone, in person. Share these interviews with others so that they, too, can benefit from the expertise and the experience and the information my guests are sharing. And number two, please leave comments at the player, at the Blog Talk Radio player. Leave comments before you leave. If you're in the chat room, don't leave the chat room without leaving a comment at the player. You can also rate and review the podcast at the iTunes store. When you do that, it increases our visibility on the Internet, and we really appreciate it. It helps other people find uh, the important information contained in each of these discussions. All right. Without any further ado, I'm going to bring on Todd. How are you today, Todd? Good morning, Rex. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you again, too, and I want to tell listeners that you have. We, we Recently, we did a, a show together uh, not that long ago, and they can find that and listen to that in their leisure. Um, but uh, you directed a movie that I very much liked, starring uh, uh, Ed Harris and David Duchovny and uh, William Fitchner and Jonathan Shake and among others, uh, The Phantom, or I should say Phantom. 
And uh, they can find, uh, listeners can also find uh, information about the movie at solarfilmworks.com, the S-O-L-A-R-F-I-L-M-W-O-R-K-S.com. So we've got your uh, website out there as well, and uh, the Filmworks website out there. Great. So um, anything that you want to catch us up with? Or? Uh, just um, living La Vida Loca, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, coming off of a couple of weeks of um, uh, pretty heavy press uh, here in L.A. and in New York, and uh, good to be home and sort of um, rebooting, you know, getting ready for the next one. Well, that's very cool. And you do have a next one that you're up uh, uh, preparing, as I understand it. I do. Uh, it's a passion project I've been working on for 13 years. I was reminded by uh, Julian yesterday. Uh, it's a it's a project called The Last Full Measure, and I have a wonderful cast uh, set up and ready to go. And uh, it's a story about um, uh, a Medal of Honor that was um, actually overlooked uh, back in 1966. And it's a story about in, in the present about how uh, a group of veterans who served with this uh, pararescuement, he was a, a combat medic, um, regrouped around the internet. Uh, sort of reunited around the internet, uh, rediscovered each other, and the fact that this man had been overlooked by the Defense Department, and um, enlist the help of uh, a, a young, arrogant, political mover shaker who works uh, inside the uh, Department of the Air Force, and it's really a story about how that man goes from a man of um, of complete self-interest to self to to, to a man of sacrifice. And it's it's kind of interesting the way uh, as he investigates this story that he's very reluctant to do, he sort of, in a way, becomes the very man that he's investigating. And so it's a, it's very heartfelt. Um, it, it has a lot of action in it because it's about a very um, bloody battle that took place in Zai Kamai in 1966. But it's um, it's something I, I really want to get done, um, mostly for the veterans uh, who it's about, who I've become friends with over the years and um and you, you you meet these men and you realize why it's so important for them to have their story told and uh, that's one of the privileges of being a filmmaker is that you get to uh, from time to time step into worlds that ordinary mere mortals don't you know get to do or see and uh in this case it's been just a tremendous privilege to hear their stories and uh, uh bear witness to their to their emotions Wow, that is really, truly, truly cool, and and uh, and you're you're so right. I mean, filmmakers and uh, behind the scenes and 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 those in front of the, or on camera in front of the camera do often get to um, live either vicariously or or actually try on uh, you know many different uh, aspects of 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 other real life things that that most of us ne- you know would never ever get to do. It, it's a um, fascinating place to be able to, a fascinating career to be able to do that. Well, since we're talking about this, you know, one of the things is that uh, maybe you can guide us or walk us through is 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 the, you know, what you would call the genesis of a project. You know, to go through production from you know the soup to nuts from, you know, uh, you have an idea and 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 where you take it. Sure. Well, it's it's you know the coin of the realm is the realm of ideas and. The idea is the thing, and uh, sometimes they come from inside and sometimes they come from outside. 
And when they do come from the outside, it's often a process of not just taking a story. I mean, most stories seem to me to not be organized in a way that a movie is, um, which is why um, when people fall in love with books and then they see the adaptation on the screen, they're often disappointed for a variety of reasons, but uh, maybe the foremost is that they don't really, you know, a novel doesn't, fit the same kind of three-act structure that we've, we're so accustomed to in commercial movies. So um, the first thing that that, norm, that happens is I'll hear a story or be told a story or pitch the story, read an article, and there'll be something in it that touches me. Um, I mean, there are many, many things that I read that I just, um, you know, I think that's interesting, and it, 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 it doesn't push the button, but occasionally it does, and... When it does, uh, it's usually something that isn't immediate, but something that sticks with me. And then the, there, a process of discovery has to happen where you as the storyteller have to figure out how you figure into this uh, into this process and into the story. In other words, what is it in this piece of material or in this character's story uh, that whereby you can explore a little piece of yourself? To. And so for me, that that's usually the, the 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 very very beginning of the thing, and and usually I can't shake it. Um, and so you think about it, you process it, and, and maybe you get to a point where you um, you know begin the actual uh, building blocks of uh, adapting it as a screenplay. Wow. Can I I want to ask a a question a, a side question. Um as a young person, you know, I said, "Oh, I got this great story idea." And I said, "Here's my idea." And they said, "Yeah, that's an idea, but there's no story there." And I was kind of like, "Well, uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, you write the story, but there's you no know, there's a difference between an idea and a story. Do you, do you differentiate as such or do you, or do you in the in the in the in the question that I'm asking?" Uh, I, I imagine a lot of people go, "I got an idea for a movie," but oh yeah, not. I see what you're saying. Um, well, uh, yeah, uh, everybody seems to have an idea for a movie, um, but in the movie may not be there. Well, unless you understand the craft of, of of how to adapt that idea into something that is filmable, um, whereby characters travel through that that landscape growing, uh, coming in conflict with things, obstacles, and so forth. Unless you understand that, um, it's it's simply, you know, a, a fragment of something. Um, and that's that's really the work of it. If you're really passionate about it, you have to figure out a way to make it uh, a, a viable um, piece of material for cinema. And, uh, I mean, not all books um, lend themselves uh to to the the cinema i mean if something's like uh, totally uh internal uh, i mean how do you you know you want to hear the book read to you is it going to be you know voiceover from beginning to end you know it becomes more of a tone poem maybe um so uh, the, i i guess i'm not exactly sure what your question was except to well, differentiate just... between the two and uh i can only speak to my own you know process and i you know certainly had people shake me off more than more than a few times in my career. Um, but I think you have to do that homework and you have to understand uh, basic structure so that when you go in to tell that story or pitch that story, 
that you're you're telling it in a form that that the 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 buyer or the person on the other side of the room um can uh experience in the form of a movie and that's yeah, yeah. No, you you very much answered my question. I mean, in other words, you know, for, I've got an idea that you know somebody's going to do something, and and you know, or that there's some form of corruption in the government or whatever, uh, until it's put into a story structure, um, you, you know, uh, uh, it it just it does exist as an idea. I mean, in other words, well, yeah, you know, you're you're leading me to a to a different answer, which is. Generally, it's not what a story is about; it's who the story is about. So, okay. if you have a story that's interesting about, oh, I don't know, you know, you just said it—a a piece of government corruption or a cover-up, sure. something. Um, I want to know who it's about. Is it about the man investigating it? Is it about? I mean, how are you? How are we going to experience that story? And how does that story um, change the person who's investigating it? Um, is it somebody who's naive who comes in, uh, who's a true blue believer in whatever the institution is, and their eyes are opened, uh, and yet they hold on to their optimism? Uh, I mean, what you know? What is your take on it? That that's you know you hear that a lot. That's like some of that Hollywood you know jargon. You know, what's your take? Well, that that's an example of a take. You know, how do you want to take me through the story so that? Uh, so that I experience it in a way that is meaningful to you, and hopefully it's broad and open enough so that I may project my own uh, life experience into it uh, so that I can claim the movie for my own, uh, you know, so that there's something in it for me too, Um, which is an interesting thing in making films. um, If you're, you know, it's one of those, the the, the classic example is, you know, of Clint Eastwood going through his scripts with with a Sharpie and, you know, etching out, you know, half of the lines. Um, but he, he understood something very early, I think. And I, I can't speak for him, but I I, I, I think this is w- what this, th- that anecdote means, is that he understood that he, like the movie screen, is, is a blank canvas that the audience interactively projects their own feelings on. And if you talk too much, if you say too much, in a screenplay as well, um, you sort of rob them of that exploratory experience and of the ability to unconsciously uh, experience it through their own prism. And so when one is writing a screenplay, uh, I, I think it serves uh, the entire process to not overwrite. Um, so uh, that's it. that just kind of popped up when you were talking about that because um, we do tend to overdo it and over-explain um, and sometimes in Hollywood movies, you know, people go into, te- you know, they have test screenings and so forth, and there is confusion occasionally, uh, or often, really, especially with first cuts when they're tested. Um, and unfortunately, people will over- that don't understand process, that don't understand that it's probably uh, as much a, 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 the solution is as much in paring down as it is in building up, will, you know, add dialogue. <laughs> You know, or add things, uh, and and that's why we we sometimes feel like movies are a little dumbed down when they're over-explained. So um, it's a, it's a very um, it's a very you know fine thing to to make these things really sing properly. Well, I think I think it was that one that's an excellent answer, excellent point of discussion too, that that you just gave, 
and the notion that that movies, really stories, are are probably. I mean, you know, we think in terms of what, but it really is about who, you know, who the characters are, who we can identify with, who we love, who we hate, who we want to, you know, you know, yes, the what is important, but it's what happens to who or whom that 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 makes a story. I think well, and conversely, it's the reason why uh, movies don't get made without actors. They don't get financed without actors. Because it's yeah. it's the movie star and whatever they mean in the in the greater lexicon uh, of popular culture, um, they're bringing that thing to the fore, and that's why things tend to get financed. Um, I mean, some movies, uh, you know, smaller movies and so forth, get financed without that. But in the world that I travel in, um, it's all about that actor. And and what they're and and the fact that we're going to track the story through them, and that's the thing that's uh, quantifiable. You know, that's the thing that that they can look to and and put a price on, uh, or a possible price on, um, in in terms of how the movie might perform, which is utter nonsense in a way, <laughs> because if you you can put the best actor in the world in a bad movie, and it's still going to be a bad movie. But true. Uh, anyway. Well, but I mean, it makes it almost. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, we could find every counterexample in the world, and every over, you know, every generalization, and everybody would have an opinion. But I, you know, I, if if I were going to venture um, a thought regarding this, just in terms of human psychology, it appears that we grow up playing, whether we were cowboys or Indians or banks and robbers, or doctor and nurse, or whatever it might have been. Um, I, while we do that, we often play. Well, at least in in my experience, somebody, you know, we were Errol Flynn, or we are, you know, um, uh, Christopher Reeve, or you know, we, we whoever we, um, I guess, see as the cowboy, you know, the good or the bad one, or the the good or bad banger. We 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 emulate others. We we have idols. We have sports heroes. We have all these. So it makes a whole lot of sense that we want to see. You know, a, a particular actor or star respond to a situation and/or go through it because we tend to vicariously do that when we're sitting in the screen. We, you know, not only do we want to make love to the men and women, but or you know, we want to be them. We we get to live for two hours through them. Yeah, I think it's an excellent point that you make, um, especially if you if you dial it back to when you were a kid going to the movies because that's kind of the golden age for for each of us you know our favorite movies you know often are for, are of that time and uh I think a number of things are going on I mean I remember when uh my mom would you know take me and my sister or my our friends to the movies and pick us up afterwards and driving home in the car we would be like I, I can remember this you know and then the guy said yeah 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 and then so and so said and like we we you know uh, Re- replay the whole movie you know we'd remember lines and things and and uh and th- there was a reason for that and i i think it has to do with that these are all sort sort of morality plays and on one sure. level or another and so that's how you know popular culture at least in those days served us to sort of you know work out you know and consider the social mores of the time or or, or, or whatever you know, have conflict resolution. You know, uh, in a Western, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. It's the code of the West. You know, codes are big. That, that's another sure. thing. I was I was uh, talking to a student uh, the other night about a script, and um, and I happened to you know he was like, well, well, what do you mean by a code? And one of the 
best examples that just popped into my head was um, was Harrison Ford in The Fugitive, where he's in a in a hospital. He's a doctor, so he's already got a code, right? It's called the Hippocratic uh-huh. Oath. And so we know that this man, above all else, is about saving lives. And to make that point, the filmmakers, a, a, a young boy is, is wheeled in who's been in a car accident or something, and, and he's having trouble breathing. And, and the doctor, Harrison Ford, risks his, his freedom um, to save this kid. And from that moment on in the movie, you are just, you're with him. Right. Um, because right. that's right. what he is. And so now I have a vested interest in this uh, innocent man uh, who is about other people to resolve the conflict that he has. And um, and so, you, you know, I, I'd watch that guy in five movies. So that's what yeah, we're trying cool. to – I'm not sure. I'm not just talking about a little theatrical trick. I'm, I'm right, using right. to illustrate a point that who, it, it's who, not what. Well, uh, you know, I go back to a, a, a couple of things, and I loved what you just said. And it is the who, you know, when I when I was a child, I liked Groucho Marx movies. Uh, I, they were funny, but I didn't like them just because they were funny. But I liked Groucho Marx. You know, I happened to like Harpo Marx. Uh, I was a huge fan of Steve Reeves' of Hercules. Jack Mahoney didn't impress me as Hercules or Gordon Scott. Well, he was okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but, right. But, but I went out and played Hercules. I was thinking of Steve Reeves or Morgan the Pirate or whatever. I, I very much strongly identified with with the, the the actor and or what the the actor faced. And I and I think that um, what you just said about the, the Harrison Ford character, the the notion that uh, I love things that are very nuanced and subtle and and you know they have all these intricacies and. But maybe when it really truly boils down to it, we are just so much readier served as as a culture with just hot and cold and black and white and you know up and down that the that the kind of extreme things is the good and the bad, the white hat and the black hat the those themes that you can nuance them all you want but but you know when when Harrison Ford did what he did and he stood up, there's this kind of moral or ethical kind of behavior in him. I, I think that there are there is something in us that champions that. Maybe it's maybe it's if we're older, or I don't know if it's true if that's younger today or, or what, but um Well I think if you get look, I think black hats and white hats do serve a certain purpose because most people unless you're uh you, you know passive aggressive or psychotic or something you pretty much always know what the right thing to do is right you know when you're serving yourself and you know when you're serving something uh you know bigger than you we know these things and so we are reminded of them thematically through popular culture through books through through movies through television through you know whatever you know however uh our stories are being related back to us and they're really reflections of us and they're reminding us. I mean, it's it's the whole thing about the hero's journey. I mean, you know, Campbell talks about this. Why why do the same stories appear in in parallel uh, in in just vastly different cultures simultaneously? Mm. And and it's be, it's because we're we're constantly exploring and uh, rethinking our role in 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 sort of a, a broader world, a greater world. Now, when we get older, these things become clouded uh, with um, confusion, with conflict, with uh, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
just the complexity of day-to-day life, um, where it's it's not black and white anymore. It's it's rather gray because there are six things that you're trying to manage at the same time, and one of the balls is going to fall, and the ball usually takes the form of a person. You know, how do you pay? I've got the boss has told me that I have to stay late tonight, but it's my but my kids depending on me to be at a soccer game, and. And after the soccer game, I'm I'm in charge of getting dinner and you know wh- whatever it is, and something falls. You're going to disappoint somebody. So what is the right thing to do? And 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 so you know when we're doing the scene work and those, you know when you're writing scene work and directing scene work, at least for me, I'm always trying to find a third thing in the scene, um, so that it becomes more complex. Or a third and a fourth thing, and it can be in the form of somebody coming in and distracting or or what we already know about what, where the character has to go after this. And um, I, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, uh, descending into gobbledygook here, but the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that those themes still resonate in more sophisticated movies designed for older audiences. It's just that they're, they tend to be more complex because our lives right. are complex. And our, um, what we project onto them based on our life experience is more complex. So it becomes, you know, rather than checkers, it becomes chess in a uh-huh. way. Uh-huh. Sure. Sure. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. So so how do you know, I mean, we were talking about ideas and things like this, but how do you know if you should write something? And and and, 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 and uh, I guess additionally for you as a director, if you want to direct something, but, but we were talking about ideas and, and, you know, where they may come from and, and maybe somebody gives you an idea or you know, versus buying a script, you know, or optioning a script. Uh, how do you know if, if you should develop the project? What what criteria do you use? Well, I will um, plagiarize a line from our good friend Pendentium by saying he had he had the best answer for this. Um, he he said, "I have to ask myself if it needs me." <laughs> and, and I, and I think that that's a without being cute about it, it's, it's actually yeah. a very thoughtful answer because mm-hmm. um, there are multi. So the the question needs to be broken down um, between sort of art and commerce, and sometimes they merge. Um, we we who do this uh, have to make a living, and we don't always get to do what we want to do all the time. So the, we service other projects from time to time somebody gives you something you need to make money and you go okay I'm going to take that on and I'm going to I'm going to do the very best I can with that um and you're working for with for somebody else um and and so you you do the best you can in sort of an engineering and architectural way to serve their purpose you know their ideas I'm working with uh, uh Pietro Scalia right now on a on an adaptation of Lewis and Clark that he's going to direct and it's uh, it's a monstrously huge piece of history, you know, and right. uh, and and but it's 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 his to direct. It's his story to tell. He is uh, Italian. He has a different view of America than I do, um, and so uh, so in that case, I'm there to listen, learn, and and try to infuse the characters with what's important to him. And that's fun, and it's satisfying on a certain level. In terms of a uh, – and then sometimes, you know, you you get offered ideas that studios or directors, producers want to develop into stories um, where they bring you a piece of existing material. And 
I will look at that and I ask that same question. You know, is there something? Can I bring something to this that isn't just, you know, the same as most everyone else is going to bring to it? And you can tell. I mean, especially if the if the piece of material doesn't really have a point of view, you kind of, you know, you're kind of reaching. And I, I when I can afford to, I I, I pass on those things. And as a director too, it's so much of it is homogenized. Uh, so much of it is familiar, and uh, unless the writer, you know, especially when you're given a script, unless the writer has a really cool voice, um, it, it looks like an awful lot of work for somebody like me to look at that piece of material and go, well, how the heck am I going to make that great? Um, especially when it's not flowing through my fingers, which is, you know, the, the place where I feel like I can really control the material. Um, and then the third piece of it, I guess, would be, you know, what are the things that 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 you as a as a writer or as a filmmaker are really passionate about? And uh, for instance, this this film, uh, the last full measure that we're um, working hard to get going this year, is um, I've stuck with it for so long, and it really goes back to a moment where I realized that I was part of that story by extension. And and that was the moment. It was that was the aha moment when I knew that I had a place in that story. And I'll give you, I'll tell it to you anecdotally because uh, it's. It, I think it might be useful to people listening. Um, sure. I was um, so I, I I told you briefly what the story is about. Uh huh. Nineteen sixty six, young pararescueman goes to Vietnam. Uh, Big time hero drops into this horrible battle from a helicopter. Refuses to go back up saves about 60 guys' lives, and ultimately dies. And, oh. and and lo, 34 years later, this group of guys reassembles with the help of this other guy, and they they go about the process of reinvestigating it and putting it before Congress. So that's the story. That's the wow. story that I ended up telling. The the story that the guy... So I was doing a movie for Wolfgang Peterson based on pararescue, the, the skill set pararescue, and it was based on a book Mm-hmm. And the book was anecdotal, so I was struggling a little bit to try to figure out what that story was in peacetime, because this is back in 1999. And so I was going. Uh, one of the things that I should mention is that when you're that I, one of my great joys, it goes back to a point we were talking about earlier, is uh, this idea that we get to stick our toe in the water of all these wonderful uh, different worlds. And right. one of them, in this case, was pararescue. And so I got to go through. Uh, Indoc and uh, quite a few of the schools that that they go through uh, over a two or three year period in order to become pararescuemen. And while I was there, while I was going through this, I was traveling all over the country. All these young guys would come up to me and say, "Yeah, yeah, it's cool that you're doing this movie. Do you know the story about Pittsburgher? Do you know that one?" And I'd politely say, uh, uh, "Yeah, kind of, but go ahead and tell me again." And they all wanted to tell me the story. This guy's like the patron saint of these guys. And I didn't want to really, I didn't want to make a movie about just a battle, you know. I, I, I didn't see myself doing that, and but I kept listening, and I ended up at Kirtland Air Force Base, uh, and coincidentally, uh, Mr. Pitsenbarger was there, and they were dedicating a building in his son's name or something, wow. and he got up and he was very elderly. He was uh, sick with cancer, and the the. You, you realize once I met him, I, I started to realize what the urgency was with these veterans because they wanted this to happen before this guy passed away. 
And Mr. Pitzenbarger got up there and started talking, uh, you know, in a very sort of homespun way uh, about all of the things that he loved about his son, but most poignantly the things he never got to see him do. Like he never got to see him um, fall in love with a girl. Mm -hmm. He never got to see him get married, and he never got to see him have a son or a daughter of his own because only then could he understand, his son understand, how much his father loved him. Oh, wow. And as I'm sitting there listening to this in the blazing sun in New Mexico, uh, uh, tears are start rolling down my face. I mean, I don't mean, mean to over-dramatize this, but I really got found myself emotional. Yeah. And, and I flash back to the dinner table uh, as a kid. And and uh, I wasn't – I'm a little too young to actually have gone to Vietnam, but I, I didn't miss it by much. And as, a, as we get older, you realize how fast time flies. I mean, hell, we've been in the desert for, you know, 13 years or whatever it is now. Right. So there we are sitting there. My my parents are sitting there, and my dad's sitting over there, and we had a black-and-white Zenith TV, and the news comes on. And we'd always watch the – he'd always watch the news. And my dad was kind of a – a silence and rage guy, kind of guy, you know. <laughs> he was great, but he, he he didn't say a lot. And uh, we're just sitting there and he's eating a steak, and he looks up, and at the end of the the the, the news, they would flash up. And this was uh, McNamara's little game with America. They would flash up uh, the the KIAs and the wounded, and they right. show the Americans, you know, twelve killed in action, twenty four wounded, and then they'd show the Vietnamese, and it would be. 50 killed, 275 wounded, you know, and it was like a scorecard. And I and I would always kind of glance up as a, as a 12-year-old or whatever I was and, and go, uh, oh, um, I guess we're winning, you know. <laughs> it looked like right. a basketball game or something. And I just remember my dad looking up and muttering under his breath, if this war lasts any longer, we're going to move to Canada. Wow. And wow. I didn't know what that meant. Right. I, I had no understanding of what that meant until the moment that I was sitting there listening to Mr. Pitsenbarger, because at that moment in time, I had a young son. I still do have a young son. He's in college. Uh-huh. But, but it's so all of a sudden, there's three generations sitting there experiencing this multidimensionally, and I'm going, how would I feel if, if I lost my child in a, in a war that he chose to go to because Pitsenbarger had volunteered to go? Right. How do you say to your kid, "Don't go and serve"? Right. You know, yeah. I mean, it's so complicated, and so it was in that moment that I knew that I had a story to tell, that where I could, I had discovered myself in that conundrum, and so that was a very long story. Forgive me for burning no. everyone's oh. ears out, but, but I, I use it to illustrate the point that if you if you think and are thoughtful and reflect. Um, and and you and there's something about it that that's kind of hooked you anyway. You'll find that thing, uh, and it just so happens that the the themes in my work happen to often be about uh, what I call non-romantic love stories between men. You know, fathers, sons, brothers, soldiers in arms, people on the field of sport. Uh, you know, those kind of things. Uh-huh. And um, and so there it was. It was just laying there for me. Um, and then, and then the movie didn't become about the battle at all. It became about re-exploring the value of this man's sacrifice and why so many people cared about him. And they all happened to be men. And it, and so the main character in the movie, uh, it turns out, 
has a missing patriarch in his life. So it's really a, a, a story about how how uh, this young, very um, sort of disconnected, not too successful father in his own right, because he has a young son, uh, is uh, is totally a political climber, and it's all about him. And and he is he he goes through the um, uh, the, the, the sort of emotional grist mill. Uh, of of how you become a man, and he does it through his interviewing of these men, and the fact that they come to rely on him, and put that that pressure on him, and so it becomes a very you know wonderful. Th- the, he starts out not a nice guy, and you track him through the movie, and you start to care about him through his wife, who was hung in there the whole time because she's the one who understands his potential as a human being. And so it becomes a, it starts off as a very simple nugget of an idea and it becomes a very sophisticated exploration of the human condition. And so uh you know when I find something like that I can't not do it. I can't that's not write cool. it. I can't not and that's why I've stuck with it for all these years. And wow. that's why my actors have stuck with it. I mean I have you know Morgan Freeman, Lawrence Fishburne, Andy Garcia, Ed Harris is going to do it. Uh, David Duchovny is going to work on it. I mean, it's it's all, all my guys are coming back because they love the piece of material, and um, and and that's again. I I said it before. I'll say it again. The coin of the realm is the realm of ideas, and that idea for us takes the form of a script. And if you have a great piece of material, they will come. And we we as filmmakers have to make it impossible for people to say no to us because it's so easy to, because all the people that can say yes are generally you know, afraid because yeah. there's, there's too much on the line for them. You know, it, it, there's great risk involved in making films. So, anyway. No, that's awesome. I I, I appreciate that so much. That was uh, very well spoken, and 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 uh, I think for all of us who are listening, uh, and truly truly valuable and, and very beneficial. Um, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break and I'm going to come back because there's so much that's in there, uh, and, I, and I also want to tell the audience something. Um, and give them a heads up for something. So uh, if you'll excuse me for just a moment, we'll take that break, and and we'll come back. All right, Todd? I'll be here. Okay, cool. Uh, Everybody, you're listening to RexSykes.com. That's the official URL for RexSykes Movie Beat, or you're listening through RexSykes.com, I should say. All these interviews are stored there and archived there, and you can listen live from there. Please do share them with your friends, and please do leave a comment whenever you listen, wherever you listen, at the player or through the podcast. Uh, do rate and review them. All right. Uh, you're listening to Mr. Todd Robinson, director of The Phantom. We're talking about writing and ideas and screenwriting and, and a whole host of stuff. Todd has uh, so graciously consented to come back and talk about so many other things uh, and and to do so uh, you know, in topics. And so just a heads up. you know, We're talking about writing and ideas and things now, but uh, at some point there's financing and casting and actors and talent agents and lawyers and entourage and and planning and scouting and budget and managing production and all sorts of things. So you're going to want to stay tuned to these discussions that we have upcoming with Todd as well, as as well as this one. So please do share and let people know about it. I appreciate that. My next guest, and I'm just going to tell you about my next guest, is um, is director Lance Cowis. And Lance is uh, a director. He's done a number of independent films he writes, and, and uh, he's also been on the show before, and we're going to have him back on Thursday the 28th. And uh, he's my next upcoming guest, so be sure to listen to uh, to the show with Lance. Um, Peter Marshall will return because we're doing the director series uh, in April, as well as many other guests. Uh, we resume on uh, Serum 
in terms of shooting and stuff and because of spring breaks and, and different schedules and meetings and things that I'm working on, the show will not necessarily uh, happen every time it normally would, you know, but uh, stay tuned to uh, uh, my website, stay tuned to Twitter, stay tuned to uh, Rex Sykes Movie Beat on Facebook, and I'll let you know about upcoming guests as, as they come up, and then we'll get back on schedule at some point. So thanks for your support, thanks for listening, and thanks for being here today. We are back with Mr. Todd Robinson and his website. Uh, oh, by the way, Julian Adams is coming up. He's going to be on the show, too, and he uh, works with Todd as Partners with Todd produced Phantom with uh, Penn and Todd. So uh, we're going to have Julian up, and the website is uh, solarfilmworks.com. And uh, and so you're going to want to check that out as well, solarfilmworks.com. In fact, I think Julian has joined us in the chat room, perhaps. So that's awesome. Um, So I say hi to him if he's there. Okay. Uh, so we're back. So you know, this is really, really fascinating. Now I know that we, you know we, I can ask you where you find material, you know, where you get it. But but instead, I'm going to ask you this question, and that is how do you, because we were talking about ideas and, and how they come to you. How do you prepare to write? You know, like what's your process and the research and the preparation that you go through? You've you've now found something like what you just described. Um, where do you go from there? Well, I think that writing begets writing. Uh, you, you can't, um, you know, thinking and talking about things are not the same as writing them. <clears throat> and therefore, uh, I, I find that something mysterious happens between the brain and the fingers on a keyboard or, or you know, in, in, through a pen or pencil like Quentin Tarantino writes longhand because that somehow for him triggers something, this mysterious sort of thing. Um, and uh, so what I, to prepare to write, once I've gone through sort of all the, the, the machinations and decisions that we've just talked about, uh, I need to prepare the, the, the road of discovery or the road for discovery. And the way that I do that is I begin to write. But I don't begin to write a screenplay. I begin to do what I call exercise work. And... It starts with a very basic question, and uh, I should uh, tell you that I I had uh, early on in my career, I worked with a woman named Sally Merlin-Jones, who uh, taught at UCLA for many years, and really over her lifetime, uh, she came from a a family of writers, really was able to organize a series of questions in what she calls the writer's workbook that you can't find, so sorry folks, don't look for it, it's not published (laughs) Um, but it, it is. Uh, I, but I would be happy to make it available to you, Rex, if you wanted to share it with uh, with the folks. But oh, at any rate, yeah. it's a series of questions. And the first question is, why do I want to write? Or in my in in my terms, why do I want to write this? And and I, it's something that that uh, I begin to answer. Why do I why do I want to write this? Well, I don't know, but I guess I need. I want to write this because. And you just start writing. There are no rules. You say, well, I want to write this because uh, there's this guy that I met, and he's interesting to me, and he kind of reminds me of my dad. And you know, when my dad was in the Navy, <laughs> you know, and the mm-hmm. next thing you know, you're writing about something that is actually personal. And and I'll do four or five pages on that question, and just well. write. Write, 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 and don't stop until you're finished. And you'll know when you're finished. But you can't, you can't cheat it. You can't. I, I try this with my students all the time at USC, and uh, and they always, you know, they come back with a half a page, and I go, uh-uh. that that was that was you, you know, just trying to satisfy me. What you need to do is 
do something that that will deliver you material. So the first question is, why do I want to write this? Other questions are, who is the story about? What does the main character want? Uh, who is the adversary? Um, and it, it's a long, long series of, of – not a long, long series of questions. It's a series of probably 15 questions like this that I that I address. And But the biggest, maybe most important exercise is what I call biography work, which is uh, me starting with uh, the character, the main character. Um, usually I start even – I mean, I might start with their birth, but I usually go backwards and because we're all formed by – our families and our parents and so forth. So I, I will usually go back a generation and write a little bit about who the folk, who, who that person's parents were, and what their struggles might have been, and so forth. And and then I, I I move through and I start writing this character biography that takes the guy or gal th- from birth to the beginning of the movie. And sometimes that'll be wow. 20 pages long, single space. And I will do that for um, in varying degrees for all of the characters. Um, I, yeah, I don't. I don't spend that much deep. You know, I don't take that much time except for the main character. But I'll do that. And by the time I'm finished with this exercise work, um, I've discovered all kinds of things. And it's always personal because how do you know what to write? Well, you can't know what to write because the character doesn't even exist. So how do you know who they are or what's happened to them or where they've been or how they're going to react to something? Well, if you write it down, if you start to write, you know, Bob Smith was born in uh, Tallahassee, Florida in 1966. You know, if you start with that and start writing and he had a sister, well, what did his sister do? What was his sister about? Well, I don't know, but I have a sister. So invariably you start writing anecdotally about your own life experience and you, you track. I track through all of this work, and in the old days, when before Sally passed away, I would she would print it out and take a, sh- uh, a highlighter, and would just start highlighting things through it. And when you looked at what was highlighted in various colors, you would start to realize that there were themes. There were things that you were hitting on. And when you looked at it in those terms, you went, "Oh, look, I'm writing about uh, a son trying to win his father's approval." Huh. Well, that's interesting. So now uh, let's let's take um, let's take Wall Street for instance. Everybody's seen that movie. What is that movie about? Well, it's about Char- Charlie Sheen, Bud. You know, trying to get out of the shadow of this blue collar father that he has and be a real player. And in the end, he realizes that the the most significant man he's ever known in his life is his dad because he cares about other people before he cares about himself. Well, that just doesn't happen in a screenplay. That's a lot of work, and that's understanding what you write about, and that's finding a theme, and a, and that gives you point of view and philosophy, and all of these things that will appear in the scenes. And if you're a writer director and you've done this work, when the actors come to you and say, "So I'm confused about what I'm supposed to be feeling here," or what this little bit is about you've got that information because you've already written it and so if you if you do that kind of preparation and sometimes it'll be 80 100 pages for me um when i when i write fade in i'm not going to get stuck on page 50 you know i'm just not because i've i've so completely pre pre-visited it's like pre-visualization in writing and uh-huh. uh 
And I, I know a lot of people that, and a lot of writers groups that will tell you, oh, we can teach you how to write a, a screenplay in a month. Well, I can't do it. it. You know, I work on these things for years sometimes. You know, it just keeps gestating and changing, and you put it down and you come back to it. And you know, I mean, if I have a job, I mean, a gig, I mean, I can I can probably soup to nuts write something in four months, but you know, it, it may not really be ready for prime time. But that's me. I mean, I, I mean, David Mamet can sit down and grind it out, and I, I've heard tell that he doesn't do much rewriting, um, but he's David Mamet, and I'm not. <laughs> No, but that's, 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 I think, you know, everybody will find their own zone at some point or their own method or their own uh, what process works best or, for them or a process or that works best for them. Or they may struggle with finding that, you know, for much of their career or their lives. But, but uh, you know, when you have something that works for you, whether whether somebody else has a slightly different process, the, the information about your process and or what you consider uh, whether it takes them, you know, a month or four months or ten years, uh, versus what it would take you, uh, it's still incredibly valuable information. The idea that you 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 get to you said in the beginning when we were talking that it's about who, and then and then you tell me that your process is sitting down and 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 discovering that. Right, and I agree. Everybody has a different process, and I would never like try to sell anybody specifically sure. on what I do. But I do think that there uh, that that there is uh, great benefit by um, by doing that initial preparation. Oh, right. No, I, 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 I agree wholeheartedly. You know, Field used to say, and I, I didn't get this for a long time, but uh, when I used to sit in his classes, he he used to say, uh, "If you don't know who does." <laughs> and, right, and, yeah. and, it, and it's a it's a it's a very profound question because um, th- that's where people get stuck, and and I understand it because I want to write, man. I want I want the results. I want the th- you know I, I probably said this before, but I love to quote Lillian Hellman who says, "I hate to write, but I love to have, have written." You know? <laughs> uh, have a, I always you know what I used to say is I, I don't want to work out. I want to have had worked out. Yeah, there you go. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to get the body of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I want to already have had, had it. Right. Yeah. And, and the only way to get there is the only way to go there is to get there, and the only way to get yeah. there is one foot in front of the other. So, um, for 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 most people, um, you know, and you do get faster and faster at it. You know, like you're working on a television series. I mean, you got to grind something out in you know seven to ten days. Um, but it's a it's a different form, and the characters are already you know relatively created. I mean, they're growing, but you know, you don't have to start from zero. Um, so, um, and I, I just the reason I I share that is because so many uh, new people who who come to this who are really passionate about uh, writing and filmmaking, I see them fall apart halfway through, and and are completely stuck. And the reason that they're stuck is because they they don't have the the foundation that they need for their story. And and so they're they're stuck and and then you know especially if you're working with um, people who don't really understand writing per se, um, they start putting band-aids on it and a- asking the the dreaded question, what if, you know, well what if you did this and what if you did that and you know really it it goes back to well what happened to him that would drive that that decision or that that piece of behavior, you know, cool. and if you don't know you don't know. <laughs> so so, so let's. 
this is this is cool. What what's wrong with the what if? I mean, in other words, what are what are people they're grasping at when they get to that point? Well, you said you it, they're grasping. Uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to be uh, you know too too be cute about it or anything, but but no, often, I, it's it's often a frustrating question, and the reason it's frustrating is because when somebody says, well, what if he did this? Um, you should already have the answer if you've done your homework, you know, or you'll know instantly if that is uh, authentic to the character, to to what that person might do. Um, but a, a lot of times, you know, especially in um, you know big story meetings where there are a lot of people around, a lot of ideas get thrown around, um, but they're not really, you know, in the you know, in the tank with you, in the oubliette with you, in the bottom, in the dark, you know. And so they, they tend to become superficial. And I'm not saying that uh, I, good ideas don't come from that question, but uh, it can be um, it can be a little frustrating, even though it comes out of a good intention. But remember, um, people you're working with tend to be more um, less process-oriented and more, um, uh, you know, uh, product Oriented, they want a result, um, and it's it, 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 this is why it's dangerous to discuss process with people you're working for because um, it, it can confuse them and frighten them. You know? So uh, good point, valid, very valid point. Well, it, it, I I think also, and I think you you probably already said it, so I, I may just be repeating it in in a way. But I mean, once you get to the what if stage and you're just throwing out possibilities as if you know uh, find the right path to take. Um, you know, if 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 that's where you are, I mean, it it, it says that to me. I mean, it, if if I'm going, well, what if I take this, or what if I do this, or what if I do this, or what, uh, I have, I don't know where I am. I mean, I completely at a point where um, it's like spaghetti against the wall, and I'm just I'm I'm just trying to throw things to get something that somehow makes sense. And and what I hear you say is, if you understand your character and you understand the the person and you understand their motivations and their needs from their history and everything else, then the, the what-ifs are incidental to, I mean, well, something could happen in life that came along and the, the character, you would know how the character would respond or not respond. Yeah, and by the way, confusion is an absolute uh, normal state of being in, in any kind of creative process. Um, how do you know what you're going to write next? I don't know. <laughs> you know, you just write. You know, or how, how do you know where to put the camera? Um, I, I, you know, it, it's a great question. Um, but but if you do the homework, if you do the preparation, um, if you prepare the scene to be photographed, um, if you come with all the information that your your actors and your crew and your everybody needs, um, then you're good to go. And and you you really there's really not much more that you can do. Um, but in the in the writing process is so is so solitary that uh, I just uh, I, I just thought it bore mentioning that um, you, you need to first to review, you know, find that kernel of the thing that touches you, so that you have a really good reason to write it. And then, uh, if it's a if it's a wholly fictional uh, story or character, um, you, you it really need you can only write about what you know, and what do you know best? You know you. So when you go through and do this exploratory writing, you're going to come up with things that are, A, original, because they happened to you. They didn't happen to anybody else. Um, and 
you know, off you go. I'll give you a quick example. Um, I did a movie, and it's sort of a tragedy because it didn't end up in the movie, but I did a movie a few years ago called Lonely Hearts with um, John Fulton uh-huh. and Scandalfini. And, the, the, again, there, it's a story about a cop. It's, it's a, based on a true story, a uh, true crime story. Um, and John Travolta is a detective. But he's lost his wife to a suicide. And he and his young son, who's about, I don't know, 14, 15, are processing this tragedy in their life. And he has taken all of his pain and, and the sort of existential angst and put it, on this one case because it's a pretty heinous case. And and so that becomes the thing whereby he's trying to find redemption for po- personal culpability in his wife's suicide. And in, in the scene, or in the movie, there was a scene where uh, the boy, uh, his son, um, it, they have a fight and the boy runs out, jumps on his bike, and his dog follows him out, you know, chases him outside. And you, you hear a, a tire screech and he runs outside, you hear the bike go down, and you run outside and you think that the boy's been hit by the car, but it's really the dog, and the dog is dead, and the kid comes unglued. And Travolta takes him up to his bedroom, and he's talking to him, it wasn't your fault, blah, 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 blah. And And they're having this conversation, this very emotional conversation, and what you realize is the kid isn't talking about the dog. The kid's talking about his mother. You know, why wasn't I there? Why did? How could I let this happen? Blah 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 blah. And so the dog, being hit by the car, became the emotional trigger. And and the way I discovered that was because when I was a kid, my dog got hit by a car, and uh-huh. my grandmother had died, and and I never cried when my grandmother died. I sucked it up. And when the dog died, I cried for that dog for a month. I couldn't I couldn't let it go. That the grief was so deep. And really, as an adult, looking back, I realized that that was really as much about my grandmother as it was about my dog. And so that that's something that, that I don't think I could have just cooked up. It's something that I, I found in, in, in that preparatory writing, and it ended up being really the cornerstone of the movie. And unfortunately, um, the folks that made the movie um, chose to not put that scene in the movie. Oh, uh, yeah. Really to me. Actually, they didn't let me complete shooting it well oh, that sucks well you know and this is a, a conversation for later uh, let's remember this you know the difference between the final cut and not final cut and and you know how people can impinge on a you know on on, on your own project sure sure well you know, we, we are save always it. working for other people so right so we save that for for one of our other conversations and but uh you know it's it's important you know to note you know, and um, so I mean, this is this is fascinating for me. And and one of the things that I, when I was a kid, and I used to like to write, and I wanted to write detective stuff. And and I still I, I read a very narrow range of detective books still to this day, or or crime thrillers or whatever. I like certain authors, and I tend to read their series. And but but as a reader. I went. Oh my God! I could never do this. I mean, I could never do this. I don't. I don't understand how Michael Conley has, you know, so many books in a year, or how James John Sanford has, you know, so many books in a year, unless they've got writers, you know, writing for them, kind of thing, you know. Um, but like the like the romance novel stuff, where you know, one name and a hundred different people writing books. But but what what truly uh, blows my mind is the, that I used to think, well, I was just a good writer, and now I, I'm more insecure than ever because I read these complicated, twisted plots 
with, you know, technical background stuff and information that, you know, unless I were working in it or had, you know, uh, you know, researchers working on it 24 hours, I would never know to do that. I mean, my, my detective case would be somebody did it, how did they do it, and now it's done. You know, I mean, it's just very simple. Um, the research side to some of these things, like you, you, when you were on a submarine, you know, doing a submarine or, or you know, the case of, of, of your upcoming movie. I mean, just, just how do you do the research? How do you, you know, I, 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 do, you, do you pour over it yourself? Are you able to hire, like, I mean, some people have, you know, their own research assistants and things like that. But uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you research for what you want to do? Uh, well, first of all, I, I would just agree with you that um, the sort of um, CSIization of uh, detective stories has kind of um, killed the shoe leather aspect of, uh, yeah. of crime stories. I mean, it really has. I mean, when it comes down to a you know a, a swab of of DNA or you know a smudge of this or a smudge of that, it you know it kind of it, it has made it very difficult to go back to uh, more traditional. In stories of like Raymond Chandler, I could I could maybe write something not not anywhere near as classy as Raymond Chandler, but I mean you know what I'm saying. I mean, you well, know, you'd have to place it in you'd have to place it in, in a part of history where yeah. the, the, these more modern uh, shortcuts d- didn't exist. Because again, it's about who, right? Like I I don't care if it's about a microscope. I care about the fact that this guy's out thinking the criminal or or whatever based on. I mean, look at the look at Chinatown. I mean. You know that that entire uh, character is driven by something that happened in his past that you don't really ever know, uh, even understand. And uh, it, what is it about? Well, it's about the big water scandal. But who is it about? It's about a tragically flawed man, you know, who who could never get out of the way of his own ego, and you know, because he thought whatever. You see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So, but uh, to get to your question. Um, uh research is key um i don't have research assistance uh what it doesn't seem like to be a lot of fun in that um you know i want to you know i've gotten to do some pretty crazy things over the years um you know in the case of uh of phantom uh i i had a wonderful um technical advisor named kenneth sewell who um really helped on that movie in in ways that can't even be measured um but I can tell you that by the time we were shooting that movie, I did, he was the only guy that knew the submarine better than me. Wow. Um, I, knew, I pretty much knew wh- where everything was, what everything did. I mean, I, I, there's so much to a submarine, but I, but I, I pretty much knew where the systems were. And so, if an actor asked me something, I could, you know, I could, you know, give them a pretty good approximation, especially in terms of operating the bow planes and the rudders and those sort of things. Wow. And the valves um, and torpedo launching and all those kind of things. But it was because I spent a lot of time with Ken walking through multiple submarines um, learning that. Because on the day when you're shooting, you need to have some you know, some authority about these things. Sure. The actors kind of shrug and go, well, who who should we talk to? You know, And uh, occasionally I would, I would call upon him, but uh, by the time... In that movie, we got going. Um, I, I knew it pretty well, and I certainly knew the the nomenclature and and the verbiage that that was used. I mean, all of that is is, is absolutely authentic in that movie. Um, but I, I'll give you another uh, kind of a fun thing that I got to do. Uh, I, I wrote a movie that never got made called Descent, and it was about uh, an effort to. Uh, this is about. 
12 or 15 years ago now, but it was an effort to do the deepest uh, uh, submerged underwater cave penetration in the world in the Yucatan Peninsula. Wow. And uh, and in, in those days before we had practical rebreathers, um, they, they were just coming online, but they were huge. They were like the backpack on a uh, on an Apollo mission or something, uh-huh. a spacewalk mission. And now they're very very small and compact. But what it meant was they called it the underground, the Everest of the underground, where these underground unexplored rivers uh, in karst formations um, extended for many 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 miles. And in order to get, they were really trying to get all the way through this one cave system. And in order to do that, you had to go, you had to sh- uh, sherpa in tanks of, of you know, compressed air, uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of tanks. And the, the amount of tanks it took to support the last half a mile push, it was like this this huge uh, pyramid of, of of air tanks, you know. And so most of the effort was just setting it up so that you could make that last little extra push. Very unforgiving environment. A lot of people have died over the years uh, doing it. And I got to go dive and get certified. Uh, don't wow. Terrence guy. Uh, but I got to be certified as a cave diver, which is not that remarkable, except it was for me. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of people who have that certification. But uh, going into a cave, you know, sure. a couple of hundred yards back and understanding how to save your butt if uh if your gear goes bad and, right. and that you're really you are honest to god how how long does it take to die if you fall out of an airplane well i don't know your parachute doesn't open you got maybe a minute two whatever right. in, in a caves you know you you get lost you you could have 20 minutes an hour to think about the fact that you're not going home oh yeah so, it was crazy and so for me to be able to go in and dive with Wes Skiles and Bill Stone and these guys um deep into these caves and have those that real anxiety for myself where like all of a sudden you get paranoid and you're like going well, what if this guy decides to rip the regulator out of my mouth <laughs> and and uh, I remember going in one one room and it was uh, this beautiful room with stalactites and stalagmites this incredible room and uh, and I'm looking around and I became completely drunk with with the beauty of it oh wow and because yeah. the scariest thing is it's not always scary and I'm looking around, and Wes uh, scribbles something on his uh, on his uh, whiteboard and holds it up to me, and it says, "Which way out?" Oh God! And I looked around, and I realized there were three or four uh, tunnels that had led into the room, oh, and I didn't right. know which one we had come in. So that's research. Oh yeah. I'm like, how could I have ever made that up? I mean, I, if you've never been in an underwater cave, like how do you even know? You think of it like a sewer pipe or something, you know? So those are the things that give you a sense of command over your subject. And when you're writing, you really want the reader to go, because I read lots and lots of scripts, and, and most of it is, you know, it's 50 on the 100 scale, you know? And, and when I read something where I realize that, God, this guy must this guy really is an astronaut, or this guy really is a what? You know, that's when you really start digging it, and and so you have to, you know, beyond your um, your interest in the emotional side of it, which you're going to work out through your process, you also have to be in complete command of the subject, and the only way that you can do that is through research. 
I guess I could have just said that in a sentence, but I <laughs> no, but it's, no, but but no, 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 no. The the story that you told, I think, far better illustrates it because if I were to approach, you know, cave diving without ever having done it, and I read every book on it, or if I went off the top of my head. You know, I would have people going down, like you said, like, you know, just down a sewer pipe. I'd have them go into a cave. And I would think, okay, probably, maybe if I really thought about it, I would think, okay, maybe there are multiple feeds into the cave, you know, and some go out and some don't or whatever. But but you know, I, I wouldn't come to the same level of detail or experience or feeling, especially feeling, because for you to discover in a moment inside a cave, I don't know which way is out. That experience, I can't make that up. Yeah, and you also can't make up the 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 sense of trust that you have to have because this was all pre-planned for my my own, uh-huh. you know, for my uh, education, right? Um, right. Because I'm because I did what so many of these guys um, they basically wrote the book on the the safety manual in, in terms of getting certified because they lost a lot of friends through trial and error doing this. And of course, to today there's very sophisticated, you know, uh, use of cartography and 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 you know bringing a, a line in with you and and you know there are little plastic arrows on the line so you know which ways in, which ways out, all, all kinds of things. But but what he was doing was giving me that experience, and it was interesting because I com- I completely succumb to panic, and. And they say that the the uh, they used to say this thing like the dragon is in the cave somewhere for everybody. It just depends how deep. In other right. words, right. and these right. guys do the crazy stuff where they they would pull off their gear and pull pull it through little tight squeezes and uh, you know really really claustrophobic stuff. Oh Lord! And um, but I had this moment where I had this moment of panic and anybody can call a dive and I just finally I looked at Wes and I said you know what I need to go out. Now and it was just what you were saying before. I wanted. I didn't want to go out. I wanted to be out. Yeah, the only right. way to be out was to go out. And I was kind of having an anxiety. You know, it was flipping me out. I wasn't happy for a minute there. And Wes said, "Okay, it's cool. It's cool." He just take my arm, and I put my hand on his arm, and we start swimming out. There were like five or six guys on the dive, and we start going through. And you start imagining in your mind. Now I'm in this little almond-shaped tunnel. And you start to think, well, there's, you know, 30 feet of rock above me, and there's three football fields of water ahead of me, and it's not just tubes. It's going through big shale, freaking, you know, outcroppings and all kinds of stuff. And I started, you know, you start thinking about that, and it's it's not good, you know. You're not having a good time. And so what Wes did was something that was fascinating. He turned his flashlight, he made us turn our lights off. Uh-huh. And, and we had the, the string, right? It's more than a string. It's a line that you, you, you run your finger through so you know where you're going. And the most amazing thing happened when he turned off the light. I was no longer in a little tube. I was uh-huh. in the great void of black, uh, a great void of blackness. Mm-hmm. And in that void of blackness, I, there was no sense of claustrophobia. Oh, very Now, cool. that's great shit to yeah, write about, yeah. you know? And uh, again, like I... You know, I I couldn't ever I couldn't have 
ever cooked that up. You could, you could never have imagined it. No, and, and I'm a huge person in in my life about contingency planning when I I teach programs and stuff, you know, or, or pre-production. But but you know, you have to travel in advance of the world in order to know where you've been and what you encounter to come back to be able to solve it quickly. Now, what you've just described to me, I go now. These guys have got to be brilliant because first off. You know, if you if you went down into a cave and you said, okay, what are the, all the possible things that you could think of that would, you know, freak somebody out when they're in a cave? Well, you might say claustrophobia or all that. But the one thing that I hadn't thought of until you mentioned it too was the the immense beauty that you could get caught up in just how incredible something is and and lose your bearing or lose your sense of time, you know, and that that could present, uh, you know, a life challenge and that the people who are you know, taking you down may may go, well, we could always take you down to the tiniest cave or we could take you to the most beautiful cave or we could, t-, you know what I mean? In other words, the for understanding the propensity for people to do things, um, I guess is, is, is what I'm getting at. No one, I, I like to think that I know how I will encounter every situation in my life. And somebody, descri- and somebody <laughs> described somebody described something. Yeah, right. If, if only. But I mean, somebody described something the other day. We, uh, he went skydiving. I went skydiving. And he, he said, you know, all the pan- and I don't remember who, even if this was a show that I was talking with or whatever. And it may have been. It may have been my recent guest. But talking about skydiving, and and he said, you know, all of us. We were in this little Cessna, and you, know, you climb out on the strut, and you you let go. And he said, all the panic gave way to this incredible silence and awe, and you know everything. And you're up there. And I was like, wow, me too. I remember when I went skydiving, how nervous I was before I let go. And once I let go, the experience was completely transformed. One, I would never have thought I was nervous if I had thought about skydiving that way. I would never, I was, ah, this is a piece of cake, no big deal. I'm a brave guy, I can do that. But I was I was scared. And then two, once I let go and I was sure that my chute was open, kind of thing, I was like, this is the most incredible experience I've ever had. I mean, I'm looking over and and he articulated this, and I went, yeah, me too. Now, I couldn't have written that without having done it. But even even more to the point, um, I'm a dad, and, and you're a dad, you know, but I could never have written about children until I had children. I could, I could, I would have thought that I could write these kids. I could do it. I don't know that I can write them now, being a dad. I'm just saying that my whole entire life experience has changed in, in, in relationship to having children that that I would never have ever understood had I not had children and yet I would have sworn up and down that my cat was this the equal to anybody's child or that my dog had been that because I was a pet owner I knew what it was like to be a parent um you know, well, well, you know look there is an element of make believe that we have to do because we can't be in command of everything however right. um you're you're right I'll give you I'll flip that on its head I did a, a movie uh, years ago called The Four Diamonds uh, with uh, Christine Lottie and um, some other great folks. And it was a story about, uh, actually a true story, about a friend of mine's brother who had died of a childhood cancer. Uh-huh. And it's a beautiful story that's told in a fantasy world where um, his his real life, is, the people in his real life are reflected in a Wizard of Oz-like uh, fantasy that he wrote as a school project in lieu of what I did last summer, which was chemo. And it's a wow. beautiful, uh, beautiful story. And um, and the Four Diamonds Fund, I'll just give them a plug, is uh, run by the, uh, Penn State University, and they have a dance marathon every year and raise millions and millions of dollars for various children's cancer wow. uh, uh, cool. uh, hospitals and things. But 
but that, there's a story that I wrote before I had kids, and today I don't think I could write it because uh-huh. Good it, point. just too painful. Because Good point. I, yeah. it, it, it's almost as if I had to write that one before I had the kids. Now I had the family right to tell me to give me all the information about that child. So you know I was I was able to do the best that I could, and I also had this piece of literary material that he had written to adapt. So it wasn't like I was starting from scratch. I'm going to write a story about children. But um, but anyway, it's interesting because sometimes your life takes a turn and you go, you know, sure. that's a subject I probably don't want to cover anymore. True. That's a, that's a good point. And, and um, i uh, I got to agree with you. I don't mean that you can't write things that you don't have experience with. But that once you have experience with, you have an understanding of it or an appreciation of it that changes everything about your approach to it. In other words, you have more no nuance, yeah, you no know, question. because of the diving. Or uh, yeah, I mean, I I may find the same thing, which which you just said. It something could be very tough to write now, but I, I you know, I mean, I'm in full agreement with you. I just think you write about what you know, and if you don't know it, you have to go elsewhere to get it. You know, and you can well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because uh, I was recently working on a project and um, I was doing it with another writer. And there's a, a teenage, it's a, the main character is a, a teenage girl. Uh, and um, I have one of those and he doesn't. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And he was trying to like, try to explain to me the logic of uh, of a, you know, 17-year-old girl. And I'm here to tell you. <laughs> when I figure it out, I'll let you know. Um, there you go. <laughs> but but it's interesting, you know, the behavior and the sort of the mood swings and all of those things that, you know, again, like I, I'm sitting in my, I'm a stranger in my own house sometimes, you know. Oh yeah. Um, you know, trying to sort those things out and uh, and and so you, you know there there really is something uh, quite wonderful about the befuddlement of things sometimes too, where you know you're you're bearing witness to something you can't quite explain or untangle. It is amazing. Now, um, we have, let me see here, we have just a few minutes left. How many minutes do we have? Where is our clock on the studio wall? We've got, well, probably about, you know, seven minutes left, eight minutes left, something like that. And, and, you know, we were talking about writing, and there's lots of stuff that, uh, you know, we can come back and talk the next time. And you and I have got to arrange some kind of schedule that works for you that, you know, when when you can come back. But, uh, you know, I want to get into, you know, well, okay, more about the writing, and then once you have the script, then what? But how much does the market dictate what you choose, and and has that changed? I mean, or or do you ever go? I have this. Well, I have this story, you know. And in order to sell the story, it has to be written somewhat differently than how I might write it if I were just writing it for myself. Do, are those considerations that you ever make, or well, you know, make? it's it's, it's interesting. It's, it's really interesting question and uh you know i i'm a student you know i'm continuing to learn i'm continuing to learn the the business and um and all of the all of the things that you need to know to to just make a living let alone you know make a successful movie um there's a there's a young guy in my life named david ellison who um your your listeners will probably know uh finances quite a few of Paramount's movies and uh and he's he's really really smart and he I, it's it's sort of astonishing how quickly he uh was able to embrace understand and and then be able to explain to you 
um, the, the way that the the business works at that level. And uh, you know, the the movies that moved me when I was in college, for instance, or after college, w- was uh, like a movie like say Ordinary People. That to me was like a perfect movie. Uh, because I had come from an acting background. I mean, that movie held everything for me. And those kind of movies today, and so those are the kind of movies that I set out to make early on. And those movies are not really being made easily today. Um, In in the fall, you know, you get to see all the the Weinstein movies and so forth that have been, you know, cherry-picked and make it to the to the top um but it it but in terms of getting those movies distributed and um and and marketed properly and it's very very difficult and i think part of this has to do with the fact that there is a um a much more sort of um a corporate philosophy about uh product it's really viewed as product and so uh so the 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 further i get down the road the more i realize that um that i really am providing a product for a big machine that needs to put product out in the marketplace. I mean, they need to put paper towels on the shelf, you know. And so, uh, I can't if they want paper towels, I can't give them toilet paper. You uh-huh. know? So, so you, you, it really is part of um, you, you know my business to understand what people need and what the audience wants. Um, and I used to be a little bit more, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, stuffy about it. Like I wanted to write what I wanted to write and I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I think there there was more latitude back in the day. Um, but uh, but now as we move down the the, the line and I, I, I get a sense that, look, I'm always going to be able to find something in it for me. And just because I'm trying to write a commercial movie for somebody uh, doesn't mean that that there there isn't something good in it. I mean, all these look at all the movies that are out. I mean, it, it was such a great fall. There were so many great movies, um, you know, all all year. I mean, you know, look at Batman. You know, uh, Chris Nolan. I mean, look look at his films. Completely and utterly commercial, and they couldn't be more. Uh, just brilliant, you know, and creative, and uh, you know, Inception. I mean, look, look at that movie. I mean, right. people pack movies and pick things apart, but you look at the imagination that went into that movie, and that guy made that work so you could understand it. Let me tell you, that is big, big stuff. And so, you know, I look to that and go, well, that's what I aspire to. I, you know, in my own way. Um, so when, when you look at it, 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 JJ, and you look at Ridley, and you look at you know the, the, these just you know the, the men that can really mount big pictures, you know those are the kind of that's the world that I want to serve, um, but not maybe not so much the filler. Well, uh, you know we. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I'm cutting myself off. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the, in the maybe two or three minutes, I, I I would say you know I I think of it sometimes this way. I think you know if if I were manufacturing shoes. Um, I would probably be best served by finding out the kind of shoes people want or need um, and trying to manufacture something along those lines that still is aesthetically pleasing or that has some creative component in it for me or something in it for me than to simply go, I've made some shoes, who wants them? Now, both approaches are valid. One seems to be a little bit easier since it's a, a marketing world, but one seems to be a little bit easier. Um, well, let, let me let me just jump in and say that uh, I didn't mean to say that you shouldn't 
make what you're passionate about. Yes, yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't take it that way at all. You, yeah. what, what one needs to do, and Phantom is an excellent example of this, is you need to manage your expectations, and you have to you have to manage the production. So, so Phantom is a movie that that we set out, Julian and I set out initially, and and then with John and Penn, to 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 make a, basically a micro movie. Um, this, this is a movie that had a budget of three million dollars. It's very very small movie. Um, that we wanted to experiment with and you know blend with CGI and and practical models and all those kind of things and a very real submarine rooted in a good piece of material that would attract those kind of actors and see if we couldn't make a movie that looked like a big movie for no money you know and it was completely and utterly satisfying and successful on that level now um the fact that you know the business went out and tried to you know put it out there as like a studio movie I, I have no control over that but um but the experience of doing it was um you know utterly satisfying and 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 for us completely uh successful um because that's what we set out to do um but i but I, so if you have something that's, that you're passionate about with digital technology and the and, and final cut pro on your laptop but crying out loud, go go make your movie. Oh, um, I agree. I agree. So. No, I I think that's well put. I, I guess my point is simply that I, the, I I encounter a lot of people who go, you know, damn everyone, I don't give a crap, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And, and I go, that's fine. I mean, you do it, you know, be true to yourself, but at the same time realize that that there is still a business side to things and you, you might want to do some research before you do your movie, you know, or... Do your movie and see if you can sell it. You might, you know, you you may, you know, or you may not. But at least you will have done your project. Well, so. and it, well, you, I think we're coming back to the same point. You, we have to respect the fact that there is tremendous investment and risk in making movies on any level. And if you're if you're going to work uh, within the the conventional systems, um, you, you're you're working for people. You you're there to to deliver a service to them, and you have to honor and respect that. And so it's a choice that you make. Um, and, and by the way, you know, one for them, two for you, or two for them and one for you. I mean, there are lots of ways to remain uh, artistically satisfied um, and still make a living. And uh, and by by the way, you know, like, wouldn't it be great to make a great big huge movie? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Yeah. It doesn't get any better than that, you know. Yeah, no, so. good point. Todd, you know, we're at that point where we're literally out of time. and uh, But I want to come back, you know, and we'll let the listeners know when that's going to be. And, and you, you and I can schedule and, and we'll take care of that. But I, I really want to come back. You know, we're kind of in that nuts and bolts from soup to nuts thing where, uh, you know, we're getting a project. Now, uh, we'll come back and go, okay, so once you have the script, then what? You know, and, and we can we can discuss other things. We can continue. And if listeners have questions that they want to email or, or get us in the chat room, the chat room has been persnickety today and people have been having trouble getting in. To you know, to ask questions, but um, you know, uh, we'll come back and, and we'll talk uh, more at length the next time. But I have I have so enjoyed this. This is fantastic. I'm going to give you a call uh, right back after after uh, the show is over. But uh, I appreciate this so much. This is awesome. My pleasure. Well, thank you. I, I'll talk to you in just a few minutes, and then and then we'll come back. And it's SolarFilmWorks.com, and that's your website with Julian Adams and. And, uh, and we'll talk more about that in just a second. But thank you, sir. Okay, thanks, Rex. See you next time. All right, uh, I'll talk to you in a moment. Bye-bye. Uh, Mr. Todd Robinson, 
director of Phantom and Lonely Hearts and and others. And uh, you know, as I said, we'll have him come back. Uh, my next guest is going to be uh, Lance Cowis, and we're going to have Julian Adams uh, come back, uh, come on to the show, who is also a producer uh, of uh, Phantom. He's also an actor. He's got other projects as well, and and uh, two two incredibly great guys. And and Penn Densham, uh, a favorite as well. Uh, hopefully we can have Penn back sometime soon too, but uh, these three guys are, are in the trenches and they're making it happen and they're doing stuff and uh, I'm so grateful and so glad that uh, we get to share their expertise with you. Um, so Lance Cowboys is up next on the 28th of uh, of um, whatever this month is, March. March. So uh, be sure to tune in and then we'll let you know who and when and how all these guests are coming up through Facebook at Rex Ike's Movie Beat Friends on Facebook. Rex Ike's Movie Beat Friends on Facebook. Follow there or through my website, Rex Ike's Movie Beat at RexIkes.com. There's a list of, of people as they come up uh, and as well on Twitter. So stay tuned and keep helping me share the show and keep leaving comments when you're in the chat room. Uh, leave comments there at the player. Rate and review the show. I appreciate it. I want to thank uh, my fascinating guest, Mr. Todd Robinson, for being with us today, and for you, the readers and listeners of Movie Beat. Again, many more exciting guests coming up, so be sure to stay tuned and keep sharing. Uh, also, you can follow me on Twitter at Rex Sykes Movie BT. That's Rex Sykes Movie BT on Twitter. Also, have a, a YouTube channel, Rex Sykes Movie Beat, that's available there. And um, um, I think that's pretty much it. But I, I really appreciate all your love and your support, and all the questions and joining us in the chat room for all the stuff that you do to make uh, Movie Beat available to your friends and your connections and uh, you know make your movies, that's that's the cool make your web series, your TV shows, your pilots, your shorts whatever you may be doing and, and enjoy the process everybody have a fabulous day make your movies, complete your projects and until we meet the next time that is that.